All right, brothers and sisters, it's time to open God's Word together. If you have a copy of Scripture, I'd ask you to take it out and turn to the book of Titus with me. Titus, toward the end of your Bibles. Once again, we are going through the book of Titus. We're in chapter 2 today. Titus comes before the book of Hebrews, if you're trying to find it. Hebrews is a decently substantial book toward the end of your Bibles. Before the book of Hebrews, after First and Second Timothy. The little book of Titus, the whole book fits on just two open pages in my Bible. We're going to start here in just a second in chapter 2, verse 11. As you get there, let me ask you a question. What motivates you? Just as a person, what motivates you? I'd venture to say, all of us in this room, there are different things that motivate each one of us. We don't all share the same thing, the same motivator. But what motivates you? What gets you going? What gets you focused and determined? Are you the kind of person who gets motivated by being told that you can't do something? That really motivated me when I was a kid. and told me I couldn't do something, I'd just try to do it just to prove a point. Maybe being told you can't do something. Maybe you get motivated by competition. Some people get motivated by recognition. Just got to acknowledge that. Some of us are motivated by recognition. Or perhaps you're one who's motivated by the desire or the need to help others. To help others. Are you motivated by what motivated me in college? A deadline. Once you get a deadline, finally you're motivated. Or maybe you're the kind of person, I've known many people like this, who you can't get motivated unless things are changing all the time. It has to be something new. And until it's, it's new, if, if something gets old, you're not motivated on it anymore. Are you motivated by the satisfaction of a job well done? Uh, some of us, younger kids, you won't understand this yet, but some of us are starting to be motivated by retirement, looming retirement. And in the last service, I told a lot of the folks there, they're motivated by their grandkids. That's their motivation, right? That's one of their biggest motivations is their grandkids. I'll tell you right now, one of the biggest motivations for me for us to get back to doing church the way that we were doing it before is that styrofoam bread that we take every week for communion. You know, That's a motivator, right? Let's get back to it. But motivation is important right now because today we're looking at what motivates our good works. If you remember, if you've been with us through this book of Titus, the book of Titus is all based around this idea that what you believe should inform your behavior, your actions, your life. And it should turn into good works. Paul repeats the phrase good works over and over again in the book of Titus. That reveals to us that's essentially the theme of the book, good works. And so today we're looking at what's the motivation behind our good works. What is empowering our good works? Let's read Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'll read down to verse 15. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Titus 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now the first thing I want you to see in our text today is essentially the theme of the entire sermon. It's this. Grace is what empowers our good works. God's grace is what empowers our good works, or a life 
of godliness is empowered, infused, strengthened by grace. Look at verse 11 with me one more time in your text. Verse 11. It starts out, verse 11, with a little three-letter word that has huge significance. little three-letter word, for, F-O-R, seems insignificant. It's totally not. Here's what's going on. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, last week we talked about this, Paul talks about all the ways that we are supposed to adorn the gospel with our behavior, with our actions, with our works, right? Here's all the ways you should be living practically as a Christian, right? And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared. So why is that significant? Well, it's because the grace of God appearing is, is the reason why we can even live like that. The grace of God appearing is the ground for all of the stuff in verses 1 through 10. All the ways that older men and younger men, older women and younger women, women should live. All of that stuff is empowered by the grace of God. And so Paul is essentially saying here in verse 11, your lives should look like that, that stuff in verses 1 through 10, your lives should look like that because for the grace of God has appeared. You see, a, a life of godliness, a life of godliness is not the result of fear of punishment. Fear of punishment will not lead to a life of godliness. A life of godliness is not the result of peer pressure, of constantly comparing yourself to someone else and making sure that you feel good about yourself because your spirituality is a little bit more than theirs. And a life of godliness is not even the result of a preacher who's really good at guilt trips. You see, those things might produce results for a time, but they do not lead to a lasting godliness, a life of genuine, sustained godliness. Have you ever seen a, uh, a cartoon or a funny commercial where people are in a building inside, and all of a sudden the lights go out, Vroom, the power's out, you know? And then somebody who knows where to go to check the power in the building. They, they you know, oh, they're, they're shrugging and they're going down the stairs and they go to this little back room in the basement and they open the door only to find not a breaker box but a stationary bike connected to a generator. And a, the guy who was pedaling that stationary bike's taking a break and he's like, come on, man, what are you doing? The guy get back, gets back on the bike, starts pedaling again and the lights start coming back on, right? Well, this, this is a, a, a picture of what we're talking about here. What keeps the lights on? Is it a guy in a room pedaling a stationary bike connected to a generator? Or is it the always-on, steady stream of electricity coming from the local power plant? You see, and, and in the same way, those things that we mentioned, like fear of punishment or, or guilt... Those things can produce results for a time, but they can't last. Godliness, by those motivations, doesn't last. But if you have the grace of God as the motivator in your life, that is the only way you can produce a life of sustained godliness. You see, a life of genuine godliness and good works is actually a response to God's grace. Let's focus in on that for a second. The idea that our lives... If we are living godly lives, if we have any good works, those things are actually a response to God's grace. You see, in grace, you have received what you didn't deserve. If you're in Christ this morning, you have received what you did not deserve, right? The forgiveness of sins. 
reconciliation with God. You've been made right with Him, the hope of heaven. You've received what you didn't deserve. But also, because of grace, someone else has received what you did deserve, right? Jesus received what you deserved, the wrath of God for your sins. That's what grace is. Grace is essentially we receive what we didn't deserve, and someone else, Jesus, receives what we did deserve. That's the grace of God. And we're saying that our good works, our lives of godliness, are a response to God's grace. His grace is why we should live this kind of life. Think back with me all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. The first time we see the Ten Commandments in the Bible, the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? It's a a landmark in your Bibles. But do you remember how the Ten Commandments start? And I'm not talking about the first commandment. Do you remember how God introduces the Ten Commandments when he gives them? What he says is, Exodus 20, verse 1, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, why is that significant? Because what God is doing there is he's telling the Israelites, I have already saved you. I have already delivered you. I have already given you my love. And now in response to that, I want you to live this way. Here's Ten Commandments, right? God is not saying to the Israelites, if you follow these Ten Commandments, then I'll save you. No, he's already saved them. He already did it. He's already set his love upon them. And he's saying, because you are now secure in my love, because I have saved you, respond by following these Ten Commandments, right? And so, the same is true of our lives today. Your good works are not a way to earn salvation. Your good works are not a way to buy God's favor. No, he's already set his love upon us in Christ. He's already given us Jesus at the cross. And if you're in Christ, you are already secure in his love. And so we live a life of godliness in response to that, right? It's not trying to buy God's love. It's in response to the love that we already have from God. God has already saved you. So, in turn, in response to his grace, live in such a way that would reflect that. You see, look at verse 12 with me in our text. Verse 12. In verse 12, after he says the grace of God has appeared, Paul says this grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace is training us. Or in the NIV it says this grace is teaching us. Teaching, training, same idea. But here's what he's saying. Grace is not just what saves you, Christian. Grace is not just what saves you. Grace is also what sanctifies you, what makes you more and more holy over time. Grace is not just what saves us. It's what sanctifies us too. It's grace from first to last, from A to Z. It's grace upon grace upon grace. See, last week, if you remember, in verses 1 through 10, we talked about living a life of self-control, right? He mentioned self-control three times, Paul does, in verses 1 through 10. Well, now it says... The grace of God is training us to live self-controlled lives. The grace of God is how we do that. It's not God staying on top of you like a personal trainer would. You know, you go to the gym, and if you've ever had a personal trainer, even a session with a personal trainer, I got a free one one time, 
And that personal trainer just stays on top of you the whole time. They're constantly giving either encouragement or you know, harsher words and discipline and trying to motivate you, right? They're staying on top of you. And that's what gets you, what gets you working out. But you see, the, the personal trainer can only do so much if the motivation isn't in here, right? It's only going to last for so long. And so our godliness does not come from God staying on top of us all the time like a personal trainer. No, it's God melting your heart. Melting your heart over time with his grace to where eventually you're motivated from the inside to live a life that's pleasing to him. The motivation stops being external. It starts being internal, intrinsic motivation. You see, God could do better and he could get better short-term results if instead of grace he used fear of punishment or a system of earning his approval to motivate us. In the short term, he could get better results with that. He really could. I mean, God could whip us into shape pretty quick, couldn't he? He's God. He could whip us into shape pretty quick. And he could have a really high rate of short-term obedience if he wanted to. He could have a really high rate of obedience in the short term if he wanted to. If he used fear of punishment or a system of earning his approval, but that's not what he does. No, he draws us to himself gently with his grace. Because he knows that over time, grace will produce godliness from the heart. A godliness that lasts. A life of good works that can be sustained. And so it's God's grace that empowers our good works. And we can't miss that from this text. You can't read a text like Titus and come away with, oh, I need to be doing good works. It's not enough to just do good works. You've got to know what infuses and empowers those good works so that they can last, so that they can have eternal significance, so that you won't be motivated for a time and then just drop off. But look at verse 14 with me. Actually, let's go 13 and 14 for a second. 13 and 14. In 13, Paul tells us that we're waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice... Now, this is just a, a little aside here, but do you notice that Paul says God and Savior, Jesus Christ? He calls Jesus God because Jesus is God. Jesus isn't just a, another being. Jesus isn't a created being. Just, Jesus isn't a, a normal human. Jesus is God. He was God in the flesh. Now, we, we could spend a, a whole sermon series on that, but let's go on to 14. And what I want you to see in verse 14 is they're packed into that one verse, verse 14, are four reasons why Jesus gave his life for us. Can you see them? There's four reasons in that one verse alone why Jesus gave his life for us. And I want to go over them with you one by one. Number one, the first reason we find in verse 14 why Jesus gave himself for us is to redeem us. You see that one? To redeem us from all lawlessness. Redeem. Now this is actually a slavery term. The idea is that we have been freed from our slavery by someone else paying the price for our freedom. If you're in Christ today, if you've become a Christian, you have been freed from your slavery by someone else paying the price for your freedom. Now what were you enslaved to? What were we enslaved to before Christ? What is everyone enslaved to outside of Christ? Sin. Lawlessness, the text says. That's what we're enslaved to before we come to Christ. But what was the price? What did he pay to free us from that slavery? 
Well, the price paid was the most valuable substance this earth has ever seen. How do we determine value of something? Well, it's, it's based on what can that something get you in return, right? What can you give with that something? What can, what can you give and get back in return? Sometimes we even say values based on how rare something is. Precious, rare, we use that term a lot. But if that's the case, if that's how we determine value, then the greatest substance, the most valuable substance the earth has ever seen is the blood of Jesus Christ. Because it can buy your freedom from slavery. It's the most powerful, most valuable substance the earth has ever seen. Jesus' blood was the price paid to set you free from slavery to sin. So first, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Number two, in verse 14, yet again, it says Christ gave himself for us to purify us. You see that one? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. To purify us. Jesus not only frees us from sin, he purifies us from sin. Jesus' blood is not only the payment to redeem us, Jesus' blood is what cleanses us, is what washes us clean. You see, in 1 John 1-7, we read that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Not, not some sin, all sin. What does that mean practically for you? It means there has never been a sin that you have committed that the blood of Jesus is not powerful enough to cleanse you from. Think of the worst sin, the sin you've done a hundred times over after saying you wouldn't do it again. You have never sinned so horribly that the blood of Jesus is not powerful enough to cleanse you from that sin. It says all sin. And so the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse us from anything. Is it powerful enough to cleanse us from divorce or adultery? You better believe it is. Is the blood of Jesus powerful enough to cleanse us from a pornography addiction? Yes, it is. Is the blood of Jesus powerful enough to cleanse us from those sins that, that we haven't committed, but we see them in other people and we think, oh, that's really, really horrible. Is the blood of Jesus powerful enough to cleanse someone of murder? Yes, it is. Is it powerful enough to cleanse someone of rape? Or child abuse? Or the most heinous act of hatred or racism that you've ever seen? Yes. All sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Listen to what John saw in his vision of the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 13, John writes, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that an amazing picture? They wash their robes in blood and they come out white. It's a picture of us and the stain of our sin that can only be cleaned 
that can only be cleansed and wiped away by the blood of Jesus. Do you feel the stain of your sin this morning? Have you felt the stain of your sin on your heart and on your conscience and on your shoulders? Only Jesus can wash that clean. Only Jesus can wash that clean. Time can't do it. A lot of people think, if I just have enough time to separate me from that sinful act, perhaps then my conscience will be clean. Time won't do it. It won't happen. It's impossible. A change in what's culturally acceptable won't do it. Some people think, perhaps if, if the culture comes around to my sin struggle, and if people don't think it's bad anymore in the culture, well then I, I won't feel so bad myself, I'll have a clean conscience. That won't do it. And you know what? Good works won't even do it. You can't even do enough good works to cleanse your own conscience. There are so many people out there that are trying desperately to do enough good works to cancel out their sin debt, to cancel out what they feel in their conscience, and you can't do it. The only thing that can cleanse us of our sin is Jesus. The only thing that can give us a clean conscience is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that was number two. Number three, in, chapter, in verse 14, what's the third reason Jesus gave his life for us? To make us his own. Did you see that? It says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see, he's not just purifying you for your sake. Jesus wants to purify you for his sake. Jesus wants to, to have you as part of the bride of Christ. The church is called Jesus' bride. And listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that or so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see that language there? Jesus wants to cleanse us as the church. Jesus wants to cleanse us so that he might present us to himself as the bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle, completely pure, completely white. And so practically for you individually, this means Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. Jesus is not just saying, hey, you need to shape up. You need to follow Jesus. You need to change your life. No, Jesus is saying, I want you. I want you. I want you to be part of the family. I want you as my brother or sister. I want you to be with us forever in heaven. Jesus wants you. He doesn't need you, but He wants you. Now finally, the fourth and final reason why Jesus gave Himself for us according to verse 14 is so that you could do good works. Jesus died so that you could do good works. His purpose for our lives is not just that we would be free from sin. His purpose for our lives is not just that we would go to heaven, but it's also that we would be actively doing good to others here and now. Now you might ask a question, 
wait a second, why did Jesus have to die so I could do good works? Can't we do good works to others without Jesus' death? Aren't there all kinds of people out there doing good works who are not Christians? Without Jesus' death, couldn't we do good works without Jesus? My answer is no. You can't. And here's my reasoning. Without the cross, your good works are always going to be self-centered. Without the cross, your good works are always going to be self-centered, ultimately. You will be trying to earn God's favor with your good works. You'll be trying to earn a good standing among other people. You see, without the cross, our good works are not really motivated by love for others. Deep down, at the heart, they're motivated by love for ourselves without the cross. It's only when your salvation has already been secured by Jesus that you can do good works that are selfless. It's only when you are secure with your place before God that you can actually turn to others and do good for them because you are concerned for them and not yourself. It's only with the cross that our good works can actually be good, can actually be selfless. Because without that, our motivations are ultimately self-centered. And so I'll end with this. This is a text you might have heard before, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, is essentially the exact same message as what we're getting from Titus 2, 11 through 15 here. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the same author who wrote the book of Ephesians that wrote the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul, and in Ephesians 2 he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which is essentially the same message as our text today, Titus 2, 11 through 15. And that's what I'll leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace. Your grace is is the most amazing thing there is. We do not deserve it. And yet you have set your love upon us. You have forgiven us of our sins in Christ for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus. And we can say, by your grace we are what we are. It's only by your grace. God, without your grace we have nothing, but with it we have everything Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross. I pray that if if there is anyone here today or listening online that does not yet know the peace of your grace, that does not yet have the security of their salvation in Christ, God, I pray that you would burden their hearts. I pray that you would pierce their souls with this word. I pray that you would lay a a burden on them that would not lift until they give their life to Jesus, an uneasiness with their status before you. God, we we ask for that because that is the, the greatest thing that any of us could receive, the knowledge that we need you. We need Jesus to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. 
I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask